All right, so this is going to be a really tricky show. The news arrived this morning that Pat Fish, also known as the Jazz Butcher, has died. Pat was my hero, and he might have been yours as well. He also might have been your friend. Or maybe he was just an occasional drinking pal. Or maybe he was just a musician you admired who generously signed what you asked him to sign. Maybe he sent you a friend request out of nowhere or commented on something you posted in the Jazz Butcher Facebook group. It seems Pat knew everyone, and everyone has a great story about his generosity, his wittiness, and his way of showing up for the people in his life, his friends, his fans, his loved ones. If you've known about the Jazz Butcher and you've been on the love bus for years, or if this show is your introduction to Pat's music. Welcome. Take a seat. Get comfortable. We're going to get through this. Because we're going to get through it. Together. I'm Alex Green. And this is Stereo Embers. The podcast. Check this out. Stop me from smoking or drinking in my gym. I'm not taken in by this Free day room watching telly. 
play the whole thing. Who could blame me? That is the music of the Jazz Butcher, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Pat Fish. Let me tell you a little bit about the Jazz Butcher and Pat Fish. Over the course of a 40-year career that started in 1982, the London-born and Northampton-raised and Oxford-educated Pat Fish fronted the Jazz Butcher Conspiracy, which then became shortened to the Jazz Butcher, which then became the name that he was associated with. He was the Butcher. And along with co-conspirator and guitarist Max Eider, the band had a rotating cast of characters varying from guys like David J. of Bauhaus or Rollo from the Wooden Tops. The Jazz Butcher put out close to 15 studio albums, several live albums, a handful of compilations, a bunch of box sets, tons of singles. You get the idea. If you're a collector, the Jazz Butcher is the band for you. There's lots of stuff. They put out albums on Big Time, Creation, and Glass, and they played with R.E.M., Robin Hitchcock, and Jonathan Richmond, and the list just goes on and on and on. Now, I saw them play several times in San Francisco, and it was always sold out. Always. Not too shabby for an alleged cult band, right? She's on Drugs was probably the closest they came to a mainstream hit, and by the late 90s, things had kind of slowed down a bit for the band. Pat owned a bookshop in Northampton. He played locally a great deal. He hosted the Masters of Boudoir live series. And he just kind of chilled out after nearly two decades of frantic touring, late-night drinking, hotel staying, and rock and roll mayhem. Now, you have to understand, Pat was adored, and never far from those who did all that adoring. He was loved. You can be assured of that. And speaking of love, he loved his cat, he loved to read, he loved to drink, he loved to smoke, and he loved to play music. How much did he love playing music? Well, I asked him once if he ever thought about walking away from it all. And he said, To be honest, if I were to walk away from music, what purpose would it serve? Who would suffer? Not music, that's for sure. Only me, really. Music is one of the few things that I understand at all in this world, so... I can't see why I should ever try to take that away from myself. Now, the first time we chatted was in 1988, on the day of my 18th birthday. The Fishkotech album had just come out, and I was nervous as hell. I came home from school at lunch. I holed up in my bedroom. My mom was downstairs. I said, don't make any noise. And I had the breeziest, coolest conversation with the jazz butcher. Every second was just pure joy. At the end, I remember he was telling me he was moving. And he'd mentioned this to his cat, and the cat had run away. Pat was worried that the cat had taken him literally and thought that Pat was moving and the cat was going to be staying. They wouldn't be going together. But of course, that wasn't what he meant at all. Pat loved cats, and cats actually show up in some of his songs. So do other animals, and vampires, and prime ministers, and murdered heads of state, and ghosts, and bicycles, and booze. Pat changed the way I see the world. His humor, his candor, his affable nature, and his grace. Those were all rare qualities to be found in the same person. Now, this is one of two interviews that I'll be airing for the podcast with Pat. This one took place when the Last of the Gentleman Adventurers album hit shelves, and the next interview took place fairly recently. And it's close to two hours long. It's joyous, it's lovely, and it has some very moving moments that I won't say anything about here, 
because I want you to experience them for yourself in its purest form. I debated for a long time about when to post the second one, and my thought was, I'll just wait until the new album comes out. But now that I think about it, I wish I'd posted it a few months ago so Pat could be around to hear it. I think I kind of screwed that one up. That's the bad news. The good news, I suppose, is that when I do post it, you're going to hear a very intimate conversation with the butcher that finds him at home and philosophical about the world. But let's start with this one. It reminds me of Sinatra in his September of my years period. Pat's about 52, two years older than Sinatra's 50, and one year older than I am now. There's a touch of awareness about the weight of the oncoming years, absolutely. But Pat He kind of seems comfortable about all that. Years later, he would tell me that his 50s were a blast. So think of this as that blast as its beginning. Let's have a conversation with the butcher, shall we? Here's me and Pat Fish, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I know that you just got off stage. How was the show tonight? Oh, it was very pleasant. Um, I I was on first, and I just had an acoustic guitar, and of course, you know, the the chap in the middle, Josh Ryan, he uh, he has an array of electronics and beats and so forth, and then of course there's Thomas who built his own instruments. And it does this crazy shit. So I felt very kind of, oh, yeah, the conventional old folky bug at this time. I didn't really expect people to be listening. And, yeah, they sort of did. Well, of course they did, Pat. Um, you do this gracious thing where you insist on sometimes being the opener, where um, you know, you're at the bottom of the bill, where other people can go and have a, have a more prominent place. How do you like going first? In a way, I like it because you kind of get get that anxiety thing out of the way. You express yourself, and then you can just uh, hang around, watch the music, and get drunk. You know, <laughs> it, it helps if you're supporting someone that you like. It's really cool, also, that you stick around. Uh, a lot of times, people will, you know, they'll open for somebody or they'll be on the bill, and then they leave. But you're not like that. You seem to always stay. Um, which is incredibly supportive and very cool and also very rare. The thing is, like, you see bands, they put it in their uh, publicity, don't they? It's like, oh, we supported Bear House and the Sisters of Mercy. And as a musician, I look at that and I think, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because Bear House and the Sisters of Mercy had no say in that. You know, it's just like you got on those bills. So I can kind of understand if a support band doesn't want to watch the main band or whatever and they just fuck off back home because they want to get to bed and go to work in the morning, I can kind of understand that. But um, to me, it's like these people who leave a football match 10 minutes early, you know? <laughs> why, why would you do that? There, there was a classic one a couple of months ago over here, and I forget which one it was. It was a premiership team, and they were losing 1-0. And their 
the fans were getting really disgusted and they were giving the manager shit. And they started walking out and large numbers of them left in the last five minutes. The side that they deserted equalised and then won the game. And they missed it. <laughs> It's ridiculous. Um, the last time you and I talked, it was on the occasion of the Fishkotech album. Surely you remember that one. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can remember. You know, like I can remember specific fifteen-minute tracks of time, pretty much in real time from the making of that thing. Yeah, mostly because I was hopping from foot to foot, going, "What the hell's going on here? Drugs, terrorism, stop it!" <laughs> I read an essay recently where the author said that he thinks memory is the clumsiest of editors. What do you what do you make of that? Well, I mean, I have to admit, if you drink like I do, you can't expect memory to be that accurate a piece of software, you know. <laughs> there's, there's something about it. I mean, you, you know, you play the show. And hopefully you play a good one. It's, it's not unlike playing a football match. It's like, you know, hopefully you'll do the right thing and you can go away satisfied. And then, of course, you're rejoicing and you're knocking back the beers because you've done the work. And if it's one of those awful nights where it hasn't really connected and you've just kind of wasted everybody's time, then all you hear, I think, fuck it, I'll have a beer. <laughs> 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 so inevitably, you know, when you when you play every night for like five weeks in a row, you can't remember every night. So I, I you know, memory comes here to, I don't know, my memory's compromised by my own pursuits, you know. Well, to be fair, Pat, you're not Shane McGowan. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you can tell that because he's talented and sells lots of records. Yeah, but not for the last couple of years he's not. No, and, you know, from 10 years before that, people have been sneaking up to me in pubs and getting all conspiratorial in my ear and going, Shane's going to die. And it's like, yeah, I can find we all are. I was talking to uh, Alan McGee a couple of years ago when I was writing my book on the Stone Roses, and he said something that was interesting. He said that in England, for a lot of bands, they don't think of of their band as a career. It's sort of like, uh, you know, kind of a get in, get out kind of a situation. But I look at what you've done since 1982 and I go, well, that's a career. Well, it's a career, but it's a career that wouldn't have been able to fund itself. I've, I've done day jobs and, you know, when my mother died, I got lucky and inherited a few grids. So, you know, I've been able to live quite comfortably without having to depend on just music. But uh, on the other hand, it has been the primary income stream since about, I don't know, 85 or something, yeah. So I, I don't know about career. I mean, the whole idea about career is it's such a such a postmodern thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, you have a little bit, a little bit of success at doing something that suddenly promote you to something that you can't do. Right. <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> I'd rather just keep doing something I can do. It's it's pretty interesting to, that that whole thing about how the record business is, you know. Um, Robert White, you know Robert White, of course. Of course. Yeah. And there was that extraordinary moment 
sometime I think the back end of the 70s or the start of the 80s, where he covered I'm a Believer by the Monkeys. Now, there was you, Robert. He'd been quietly sailing along, selling like 20,000 records at a time, making back the recording money and just quietly getting on with it. And nobody sacked him because he wasn't losing money and everything was fine. And then suddenly he has this hit with I'm a Believer. And I can't remember the figures, but let's say they sell 200,000. Okay. What happens next? Everyone at the record company, and the record company, let's not forget, is rough trade, right? Right. <laughs> Everyone's on him saying, make another record, make another record, make another record. And so he bangs out another single. And actually, that does quite well. For Robert Wyatt, the man who sells 20,000 records, it does jolly well, because it probably sells 160,000. But because it sold less than the last one that sold 200,000, he's a failure. Right, right. You know, after 40 years of bubbling away, quietly doing shit, and making some great music into the bargain, after 40 years of banging away, suddenly he's a failure. <laughs> <laughs> because he dared to have a hit once, you know, it's... Because you just basically, I mean, if you operate at the level that people like me... Um, you know, what people like me operate at, the record company accountants never really see you. Right, right. You know, do you know what I'm saying? You yeah. Don't, you don't really bubble up into their view. You, you take 20 grand to make a record, the record makes 40 grand... You know, you're down there with, like, paying for the plumber and the electricity bill and stuff like that. They don't notice. Well, my guess is that you probably don't miss record company people. I mean, I'm not saying you don't need them, but you probably don't need them as much as you used to. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we feel that we've been very lucky with this whole record that we made and, like, you know, begging for money on the internet and everyone backing us up and helping out and actually getting the thing out. And it's, it's been selling well. I mean, I said to Max, look, we're offering 500 on the pledge. Let's press 500. And he's going, nah, press more. I'm going, nah, fuck off, man. Because, like, 500, if we sell that 500, we're in profit. The whole thing's finished. No need to talk about it anymore, you know. We've done, we've done the record and made a profit. And I guess the thing had been out for about a fortnight when... A complete spanner in, went into the works from Japan, where some distributor ordered, well, he ordered 150. We told him we'd only got 75, and his response to this was, great, I'll take 175. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up repressing immediately. Um, it's quite ridiculous, really, that, you know, we used to sell, like, Twenty, forty thousand records every time, and we were we were still nobody, but we would sell those kind of those kind of figures. And like right now, we're rejoicing because we've sold eight hundred LPs. Good God! This is the modern world, Alex. It's like this is what you have to put up with. But again, by comparison, when Max put out um, this affection last year, he sold about two hundred and fifty. I didn't realize that. Wow. You know, so you can say, oh, you don't need record companies, but as gatekeepers to the media and so forth, they're still quite important, really. 
the Jazz Butcher Facebook group can attest that your fans are completely lovely people who remain as devoted to you as ever. And um, they're just great people. I love interacting with them. They're incredibly responsive and upfront about how they feel um, about you and how important you are in their life. And the response for the funding of Gentlemen Adventurers um, through the Pledge Music campaign was pretty incredible. Were you a little bit nervous when you hit that button and the whole thing became public and, you know, let's go, let's fund this thing? Were you nervous at all? The, the response was unequivocally great. Um, it was five o'clock tea time on a Friday afternoon when I pressed the button. Like, you know, we finally prepared the bid and the, the little begging video and all the offers. We got it all together. And they, they, they came back time to, like, click your mouse and press the button that says go. <laughs> and I've got to tell you, it, it was literally five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And I hit it and I thought, great, well, we've got, like, 90 days to raise this money. How depressing is it going to be when six weeks have gone by and we've got like 370 pounds, you know? Right. <laughs> and I thought, well, don't worry about it. Life goes on. It's Friday evening. I had my supper. I went down the pub. And by the time I got down the pub, there were people with mobile phones out. And they were going like, man, you're at 50%. And I'm like, fuck off, I only pressed the button four hours ago. And they're going, you yeah, 50%. And by midnight, it was getting, it was like someone reporting on a football match. People, some people I didn't even really know, running up to me with mobile phones going, 87%. <laughs> no, it's fair to say, like, we were absolutely astonished at the response. I mean, we, we we did our best. I mean, like with the with the gimmicks and the things that we were offering, we were, we were trying to play the game and get people get interested and like enable people to have things that they wouldn't ever otherwise have. So that, you know, like we wouldn't have the record, but hey, they wouldn't have that, and nobody else was going to have that. We were trying to play the game, but we were astonished. We were absolutely astonished. Well, it got funded, it got made, and it sounds really, really good. Well, to be fair, we spent some money on it. You know, it's like when we were raising that money, I mean, we wanted, we didn't want to sit around in someone's living room with computers doing, like, WAV files. We wanted to go into a room with a drum kit, with an actual tape recorder where the reels went around. And, you know, once you start thinking about that, you start thinking about tape recorders, oh, that would be Richard Formley then. And we got so lucky, um, just like we got lucky with, uh, with the supporters putting the money in. We got incredibly lucky with the recording window because, like, Richard's quite a busy man now. He made a record a couple of years ago with a band called Wild Beasts. Right, I love that band. Yeah, and they got nominated for a Mercury Prize, and suddenly Richard, after like 15 years of quietly beavering away in his studio, was like professional producer with a manager and all this shit, right? And they send him all these fashionable young bands to see if he can cope with them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about Egyptian hip-hop. Um <laughs> He said that he said they were like little monkeys, they were running all over the studio, and he 
did two or three days of these buggers and he got the record done and he sent them back and the management went, yeah, we just sent them to see if you could cope with them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably gossip. I probably shouldn't say that. Anyway, it was great to catch Richard because he's really busy. And Johnny and Tim, the drummer and the bass player, and they're both good, dear friends, but they're also both top musicians. And, you know, Johnny could be in Portugal with Massive Attack or Tim could be in Venezuela with Eno. And the chance of getting those two and time in Richard's studio at the same time was so remote, and we did it. It was, it was like, you know, well, the money happened by magic, and then the timing happened by magic. And so the vibe, when we finally got in the studio and just sat down to play, it was like, well, we can do anything we like. You know, the, the gods are on our side this week. Well, you know, it made... And that's kind of how it was. I, I should think about somewhere between a third and half of those songs, the kind of drum space, rhythm, guitar shit. It's all first take. It's the only time those four people played that song. Wow. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and we, we, were, we were down for that. We wanted that relaxed vibration. We wanted it to sound like something that could have been our Island Records in 1975, but was still cool when punk happened. Because this is a, a fan-funded album, was there pressure where you really wanted to nail it for them? To be honest with you, because it kind of came out of nowhere. The whole idea of doing it came out of nowhere and then everything was so easy to make it happen. You know, we, it was it was like it was supposed to happen. It was like the steps of the yellow brick road were just falling under our feet. And so we were quite, we didn't really feel high stakes about it at all. We felt quite relaxed about it. Which I guess shows, I mean, when, when I hear animals on the record, which I did about an hour ago, I'm like, whoa, man, it's a sedate version, you know. <laughs> if I played it tonight live, and me on my own, it's a whole lot punkier than it is on the record. But that is the record, you know. There are only postcards. And by the way, Animals is the perfect opener for this album. It was, yeah, I was, I was the only person out of the five of us out. Johnny, Tim, Richard, Max and me, I was the only one who was going, oh, I don't know, should we open with that? Ooh. But they were all going, no, fuck off, you've got to start with animals. And in the end, it's it's just Johnny just going, on that floor sometimes, I'm like, yeah, come on. <laughs> now, to my ear, this album is very novelistic. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. Did you labor over the sequencing? We... All the time we were making it, we had this fantasy that we could somehow distinguish side one and side two. Like an old, like a real record, you know? Closing the album with Saint's Prayer was genius, but also, I think, the obvious choice to to end things. Yeah, it, it really had to be. And when I'm talking about side one and side two, of course, in the end, we did nothing. It's just a CD and the songs just go blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, we, we thought about putting vinyl noise between the end of Count Me Out and the beginning of All the Saints. Yeah. But the idea is that side two, yeah, you start with All the Saints and then you get to the end with the reprise there. And yeah, that, that fucker, that totally writes itself. Um, I think it was always going to be the last thing I'm... Well, it, it, you see, this is why we had side one and side two, because 
So there's always going to be a fight for the last song between Saints Prayer and Count Me Out. And in a way, I kind of like Count Me Out there, but I guess Maxie might be a little bit wary of getting that last spot on the record thing, like, as a cliche, like, you know, sex and travel and, you know, maybe, maybe he was concerned about that. But anyway, the thing wrote itself. So the idea is that side two starts with all the saints and ends with the saints' prayer. Was this batch of songs all written around the same time or were some hanging around for a while? No, some of them have been around for quite some time. Um, I think I started playing Shaky in about 2004. Um, Shame About You came a little after that. I don't know, some of the other ones are more recent, Gent Advent and uh, Solacore, they're quite recent. But yeah, I mean, I was, I was kind of calling on quite a few years because... You know, we just hadn't recorded anything. It all started. Max just emailed me and said, Hey, 30 year anniversary, let's do a world tour. And I'm like, Fuck off, you mad lunatic. He's sitting there, he's, he's got a job, and he's got a house, and he lives up there now on the Scottish borders in the middle of nowhere. And He's always taking, he's always joking about me, going like, oh, Pat will go and play to like three people and a dog on a village hall in a village on Sunday night. <laughs> and yeah, I will, because that's, my, that's the only way I can make money. I don't have a job, you know. So that's, I, I really will go and play to three people and a dog. <laughs> but when, when he sends me this thing, oh, 30th anniversary world tour, I'm like, fuck off. I've been playing to three people in the dock, and there's no money. And I, this is the this is the reason we made the record. I said, look, if you want to go and play foreign countries, we're going to have to make a record and hope that some naive foreign promoter doesn't realise that all our fans have retired. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, that 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 was kind of the impetus for it. It was just like the bloke who never does gigs suddenly decided he fancied doing a gig. I know house gigs are, are kind of big right now, um, and they're very intimate. And you did a barbecue or two, and you played someone's wedding, and I wish I'd been at both because they both sounded super fun. Um, but what is your attitude towards gigs these days and how they've changed? I mean, obviously, it's fun to play for people in, in those intimate settings, but I'm sure you'd rather play a, a club. Um, how do you feel about that whole thing? Because it's, it's changed so much. To be honest with you, Alex, in the last few years, well, I've got to a situation where even a solo show, just me, myself, can be about four different things. You know, four wildly different presentations. Um, I've just become more and more adaptable. I've just become more and more happy to... You know, I've, I've, I've become a better player. I mean, that's the thing. If you get older and you don't stop playing then you won't get any worse. And, uh, yeah, I'm not really comfortable playing pretty much in any format at all. I mean, I will sit in your living room and I will play with that amount of time.
United States, all over the place. How willing are you to travel these days? How willing are you to get on a plane? Well, you know the squad reality of this. It's like if someone's going to pay my ticket, I'm sure. going to come. Right, right. That's that's the squalid reality. I mean, you know, I I do the Facebook and the Jazz Butcher website and that, and every week someone's going, oh, why didn't you come and play in, like, somewhere in Pennsylvania or... Why don't you come and play in Winnipeg, Alberta? And it's like, well, it's not my decision. <laughs> you know? Go and ask the bloke who runs your local nightclub why don't I play there? Because I just can't, you know, it's it, it's almost like they imagine we have this enormous reservoir of touring cash that we just sit on and like, I know, let's play in Sao Paulo, Brazil. <laughs> I mean, I realize now how lucky I was to see you as often as I did in my 20s when you were playing San Francisco. Um, but as you get older, finances become a rather central issue. And you've got to bear in mind that the clubs are run by bottom liners. And they're sitting there and they're thinking, well, I can have these guys from England. They're asking quite a lot of money. Or I can have these local blokes who I know are going to pack the place for like $150. Right. You know, and I mean, these guys, that's their job. They've got to run the clock. They've got to pay their taxes. So I, I understand why it's hard. I'm, I'm kind of hopeful. Um, I'm certainly hopeful of getting over to New York and Los Angeles this year. One of the things I've always admired about you is that if you look at your early work, um, you, you arrived, or, or at least you seem to arrive, fully formed in terms of artistic identity. And... Um, you know, it took me 20 years to find my voice as a writer. Um, I know it's I know it's two in the morning over there, Pat, but it's a hard question to answer. But how did you find your voice so early? I guess I was lucky in that I actually started, like, compared to a lot of people, I started quite old. In that, like, when I did the first Jazz Butcher record, I was already 24. And I got a lot of those youthful, graceless, shit-punk bits out of my system before I was in the public eye, you know? 
I think that, you know, by the time I got into the Jazz Butcher thing and Dave offered me the contract and we got around to actually recording it, I got into this thing of, like, I'll just be yourself. Because you kind of got to answer for it, you know? And so I guess maybe that's what goes through it. As I've got the posturing out of my system before anyone noticed, you know? Yeah, but, you know, there's other people that, like, they, they achieve things at 17 that you couldn't do at 42, you know? It's like, and they just leave you gasping. You know, just hearing you say that Roddy Frame comes to mind. I mean, the guy's 16 years old and talk about fully formed. Uh, and the imagery in his songs, the playing, uh, he was incredible before he was 18. Yeah, not just as a player, but as a songwriter too. Yeah, uh, yeah he was astonishing. You know, it's a really interesting time right now. Dexy's Midnight Runners are back. Um, Adam Ant is back. Paul Buchanan of the Blue Nile just put a record out. Um, is it hard to age in this business? And also, how does one remain artistically vital? I think there's two stories there. I mean, you, you mentioned all these chaps who, like, reform their bands when they get to be about 50 and come back out again. I, it's kind of prosaic, but at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, the kids have grown up. They've got college, they've got jobs, and... Uh, you know, whereas my friend next door is probably going to buy Harley Davidson, I think I'll get the band together and go on to Because, you know, there's a lot of people, or, you know, the band goes out of fashion or whatever, and, ah, oh, let's do it one more time, let's have a laugh. I know how it feels, because I've done it myself. But what I would say is that guys like Neil Young, all right, he has actually had kids, and... God knows, he's, he's had a really hard time with his kids. But right. There are some guys who just never stopped. You know, they might have got married, they might have had children, their parents might have died, their house might have burned down, but they're still out there doing their shit. The Neil Youngs, the Bob Dylans, you know? And then you get your blue Niles who don't do anything for 35 years. And then it's like, oh, right, my investments have been quite well. I might, I might buy myself a round the world ticket and enjoy myself playing a lindrum in some foreign bar. It <laughs> <That> sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got a bit of a thing about the blue Nile. I'm not a fan. Be- because of the, of the time between records or just the, or sonically? So you weren't you weren't in from the beginning, even with a walk across the rooftops. That wasn't that wasn't doing it for you. They just never touched me, man. Yeah. You know, some artists they just touched you, and you think, oh, thank you, you've spoken to me, you've changed my fucking life. I was talking tonight about poor old Kevin Ayers, who died a little while ago, and yeah, I did I did one of his songs tonight just as a little fucking salute, and I was explaining to them about how much he meant to me, you know. But, and, you know, Dexys, when they come out, you know, it's just another band, and when they're about my age, whoop. But I look back at Dexys now, and I look at Kevin Shields' latest, Kevin Shields, Kevin Rowland's latest record, and I'm like, yeah, I'm really grateful for you, mate. But there are other people, they just don't touch you, and I'm afraid to blue Nile for me, they just, they just never touch me. It all just sounded like an exercise, you know? 
being such an admirer of your work, um, I've always been grateful that you've never stopped. You've just kept going. Alex, I'm not really good for anything else, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. It's just like, if I don't have that to fill my days, I don't know what what is going to happen, you know? I'll just, I'll just become one of these fucking social security statistics. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm far too old for anyone to give me a job. I, I, I think I'm reasonably literate and clever and I can work a computer, but no one's going to give me a job at my age. You know? There's nothing I can do for this. Well, I'm glad this is what you do because you do it so well. And and being someone who has listened to your music for as long as I have, um, it's just meant the world to me. Your music means so much to me. I can't even begin to describe it. You know, you that... don't know how much that means to me. You hear someone say that. When I was 16, I was going through a rough time in high school, and I got my hands on the conspiracy EP. And in that uh, in that song, the conspiracy uh, rap, where you kept saying, you know, you'll be all right. It really felt like you were saying to me, "You'll be all right," and I and I thought the butcher says it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And you see, that's just something. The reason that found its way to that chorus was just like that's what you'd say on tour all the time. It's like, ah, you'll be all right. And it became like a sort of, you know, we we became self-aware about it. We thought, oh, look look at us ridiculous people going like, you'll be all right. <laughs> and so it kind of wormed its way into that chorus, and then it actually, actually spoke decency to you, where we were just like taking the piss out of ourselves. That's great. I don't think I've ever told you the story, but you know your sax player is Alex Green, which is my name, and um, I took my girlfriend to see you in San Francisco. It must have been '92, and for the encore, you said, "I'm going to call up a special guest." Everyone welcome Alex Green. And I turned to my girlfriend and I said, oh, I'll be right back. And, and, she... <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of those situations where I thought, I don't know how far to take this joke. Like, how far do I walk um, before I turn back and the real guy's on stage? But the joke ended up being on me, Pat, because all these years later, people still think that I'm the Alex Green that was in your band. Um, whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> I hadn't seen Alex Green for many, many years. And about six months ago, he showed up here. I just turned up on the doorstep. And he's been living on the island of Jersey. Wow. In the Channel Islands, this weird kind of tax freak, tax avoidance place. And he's been working for Barclays Bank. Good God. And we sat and we smoked a joint in the afternoon and we had a cup of coffee and a chat. And he started telling me, he said, look, we do these things at Barclays you wouldn't believe. Like, we, we channel all this dirty money and we do this, that and the other. And, like, you can't tell anyone because no one will believe you. And he talked like this for hours. And he fucked off. And Alex, the very next morning... The Guardian was covered in like Barclays Bank horrible crime money expose, <laughs> Jersey the centre of all corruption, blah blah blah, and it went on for about six pages. Right? And I went, oh mate, oh mate, <laughs> I haven't heard from him since. When you and I were emailing a few weeks ago, I was telling you that, and you already knew this, that Distressed Gentle Folk is my favorite favorite album of yours of all time. 
But then you also told me that it represented um, a really dark period for you guys. And I know that was on Big Time, and Big Time was was doing some weird stuff. They had great bands, but the label, I guess, was a bit of a mess. Um, why was that such a dark time for you? Yeah, um, we didn't realize it was dark at the time, really. But it was like, we were, we were just, I think we were just tired. I think we were just kids. We'd got in a bit over our heads. We thought we were being followed, and we just got a bit tired, wasn't it? And we didn't really deliver. I mean, maybe we could have been pink food if we had been on our game, but we were just that little bit complacent, you know? I don't know. You know, there's Difford and Tilbrook, and there's Jones and Strummer, and there's Lennon and McCartney, and then there's Eider and Fish. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with Max? Because I can't think of one of you without the other. Well, you know, I saw Keith Richards on the telly the other night, and he was talking about his relationship with Mick Taylor. And Keith said, you see, the thing about playing guitar, right? it's not really much fun until you do it with someone else. And I don't quite know when it was that me and Max developed this kind of guitar understanding, but it's definitely there. And we're, we're, we're both aware of it, and we don't talk about it a lot. I think... I mean, it, it's an indicator of how much we don't talk about it. But I think that one of the songs on uh, Max Either 3 is actually about playing guitar together. But I don't know, because I wouldn't ask him. Is not talking about it kind of, you know, part of that, that kind of English reticence? No, I think it's... I, I, don't, I don't think it's particularly that English reticence thing. I think it's more... Um, just the case that because it is an understanding, it's something you don't have to talk about. You know, it's 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 almost if if you if you sat there like going like, oh yeah, and I love it when you do that on the seventh, and then I do the thingy. It would almost kind of spoil it, you know. Right. It's like we just we just do what we do. But to be honest, I think it's got to be down to him because when we started playing together, I couldn't play a shit. <laughs> um, you know, I'd, I'd be lucky to string three chords together in a row. So it must have been him that was kind of like luring me on into being a better guitarist. It must have been. He's a fabulous player. I mean, he really is. Yeah, he's he's funny. And he plays himself down. He says, oh, it's all fake stuff, but I know better. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on. You seem like you've never stopped being a fan of music. Are you aware of the younger bands? Are you a fan of the vaccines? Are you a fan of the Palm of Violets? Um, and are are you pretty critical when you when you hear new stuff? I'm aware of the Palm of Violets, and if I see a young band and I think they're good, then I like them. But I have to tell you, I don't really keep up with the the media stuff. You know, the media stream. I know I know who people are. You know, I've heard their name. And I'll be able to tri- triangulate kind of what they're at. Right. But I very very rarely listen to it. But the Facebook's good, you see, because I've got quite a few pals on the Facebook who are actually kind of young, trendy guys who like me because I'm related to Spaceman Three. So like, if there's anything in that kind of new, low psychedelic line, I get to hear it and I enjoy a lot of that stuff. 
how's your relationship with uh, with David J and Kevin Haskins? Are you in touch with those guys? Um, Dave was here in November. I finally got him to play the Labour Club. It was like in 2004, Andy Skank said to me, come on, do this club at the Labour. And I went, no, and he went, come on, do it. And I did. And we got loads of people. We had Dave Cosworth. We had fucking Pete Astor. We had the Blue Aeroplanes. We got all these people. It was the little club that punched above its weight, you know. But back on that first day in 2004, Dave J was on my list. And he came to tour last autumn. And a friend of mine, who's a bit of a promoter, he got in touch and he said, Oi, Dave, come play Northampton. Dave said, yeah, $2,000. And my man came to me with a desperate look on his face and went, have a word. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in touch with Dave and I said, listen, you fucking cunt. You've been on my fucking list for the Labour Club since 2004. You've got to admit, it would be a laugh. David J from Bear House in the Labour Club, come and do it. And he did. He was a proper good sport. He came down and he did a brilliant show. It was, like, it was like a kind of career retrospective. It was gorgeous. You know, the Pledge Music campaign for Adventurers did so well. Does it make you think, oh, you know, we can knock another album out fairly quickly? How do you, how do you feel about recording and the future? Well, when we, were, when we had the enormous and fortunate success that we had with that internet begging campaign, the first thing that crossed my mind was we can't do this again anytime soon. Right, of course, right. You know, because it's just taking the piss. It's like, mummy, mummy, more biscuits, you know. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> so, it might be a while, but on the other hand, I would be disappointed not to make another record after this one now. Well, it was, you know, as I say, it was nice to have a few years' worth of songs to choose from. And we we did turn a couple down. I mean, I got a couple that I brought in, and Ida was going like, no, no, you can't sing that, you can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all right. But, you know, that's just, another, that's just another reason to make another record. And, you know, we, we, we called it Jazz Butcher, because we figured that would be a good way to raise money, and because we wanted to do Jazz Butcher gigs, the two of us. But, like, I, I would still like to have a record out which is, you know, my name on it. So there has been a time where you, you've been tempted to make a Pat Fish album. Yeah, definitely. But I can remember back years ago, right, quite early on, saying, well, I'm Jazz Butcher, how can I go solo from being myself? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, I, I landed myself with that. Really, I, I did it to myself. But I would, you know, I wouldn't mind making like a kind of personal, personal kind of acoustic-based LP, but only if I've got good enough songs. Well, just as a casual observer of crowdfunding, I, I think that people enjoy being a part of the process. Yeah, it's it's. Um, yeah, I think in a way it affords an opportunity. You know, the kind of guys who send you emails to your website going, oh, why don't you come play for keeps? It actually gives them an opportunity to contribute something concrete 
that will get a result. You know, it's like you can send all the emails in the world saying come play in Poughkeepsie and we're never playing Poughkeepsie. But if you send us $10 for a fucking photograph of Max on the toilet. The industry has changed so much from just in terms of putting out albums from when you started to how it is now um, for good and for bad. Where, where are you with that? I don't really like it, honestly. I mean, because our generation were totally spoiled. We came into it when, you know, you can have an idea for like one and a half songs and some plan that gives you a whole LP to indulge yourself. Right. <laughs> so we, we were really, really spoiled. We just came in at that time. And now, of course, it's the exact opposite. But I guess we were just lucky that we made enough records that people like, but these people will still support us, you know? I mean, Pat, it feels pretty safe to say that, you know, your fan base, they love you, and they'll support you to the very end. I'm really grateful for that. And I, I do have to say that one thing I've noticed is that as we all get older, most of our fans probably get more prosperous. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, yeah, it's time for the 24 CD retrospective. Well, something tells me that one day that probably will come out. Uh, Pat, I appreciate your time, man. I'm glad we're pals. I'm glad we're in touch. It's always so fun to talk to you. It's got to be close to three in the morning over there now. So um, I appreciate you staying up late and doing this. Yeah, I only hope that I made some kind of sense to you. Honestly. <laughs> Listen, I got it. You made perfect sense to me. Cool. And Pat, I always love talking to you. Alex, it's a pleasure. As we, as we sit here talking, I'm, I'm sitting up in the bedroom, but I actually hear a large number of people entering the house. I do hear that. They're coming into your house? Yeah. Oh, I thought I was keeping you up, but the night is clearly not over. No, it looks like the trouble may just be beginning. Well, I'll leave you to it, pal. Uh, great chatting with you, and I can't wait to do it again. Super, it's been great chatting with you, my friend. where that interview ended it's a nice way to think about pat kind of frozen in time you know the party following him home the night never ending i don't know it just feels like that party is in perpetuity and and he's still there so i find it kind of comforting um tough one you guys really a tough one um pat was always so nice to me over the years and i'm glad you got a chance to hear us talking there will be a new album. It is done. It's in the can. It's coming out in 2022. And um, it's going to be a, a very emotional listen. But evidently, the advanced word from people in the know is that it's a, it's a masterpiece. So get ready for that. When that comes out, I'll air my final interview with Pat. So, you know, that's something to... Uh, I mean, looking forward to it is a weird way to put it, but look for it. All information on Pat Fish and the Jazz Butcher Conspiracy can be found on thejazzbutcher.com. It is a brilliantly curated website. It really is. Um, they do a marvelous job. 
So go there. In the meantime, buy all the music. Buy all of it. It's all so good. And while you're at it, adopt a cat. Pat was a huge fan of cats. And here's a great occasion for you to have a new little friend in your life in honor of the Jazz Butcher. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. Not a brilliantly curated website, but what can I do? Uh, you can also email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at EmbersEditor. You can also follow me on Instagram, at EmbersPodcast. Go to BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And don't forget, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review. You know how this stuff works. But listen, we appreciate your support. Thank you in advance for spreading the word. I told you we'd get through this together. I don't know if we're through it, but we're getting there. We're working on it. It's going to be a slow process. We're going to miss Pat Fish. But his music, it's never going anywhere. It's here. Enjoy it. It's an amazing gift. So yeah, we're going to be all right. But don't take my word for it. Take the butchers. He'll get you through it. Enjoy. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. It would get us started, it would help us all a lot If you'd understand, there's a conspiracy in pop They work worldwide and they're on TV The jazz b b b b butcher conspiracy From Oslo to Rome, New York to Berlin When the conspiracy knocks, somebody always lets us in Armed and loaded with philosophy To consider the big ones so seriously In the world of science, there's something going on It's the egg-potato phenomenon So if you don't know the ratio potato to egg You'd better shape up now, somebody's pulling your leg In and everything turns as ugly as sin You'll be alright You'll be alright What you gonna do when the bus breaks down And it's four in the morning in a foreign town You'll be alright You'll be alright There's a pain in your head, there's a hole in the road You gotta look at this thing in philosophical mode And you'll be alright You'll be alright When circumstance gets you on your back You gotta roll, roll, roll for the exit jack And you'll be alright Yeah, you'll be alright Questions. They're bothering you and they're bothering me And they even bother people at the BBC Big questions, big questions
all your assumptions upside down Well, welcome home, you're on the wrong side of town But you'll be alright You'll be alright Big questions Big questions Aristotle, Hume and old Plato You gotta see those suckers go, go, go Big questions Big questions You'll be alright Snappy is the late George Brown. 